This is a Clark University podcast. RFU contains grown-up themes and occasional coarse language when they get carried away. Please take care while listening. Hello, professors. My name is Andrew Hart, and I'm a creative content producer in Clark's communications office. I also produce podcasts. Recommended for you this week is Romance and Cigarettes, a 2007 film written and directed by the great actor John Turturro. It stars James Gandolfini, Kate Winslet, Susan Sarandon, Steve Buscemi, Christopher Walken, and a bunch of other people. I am recommending this film for you because it's a musical like no other, because it has an insane performance by Kate Winslet, and because it's a musical made for people who hate musicals. This, this, this is recommended for you, for you, for you, a podcast where Clark University screen studies professors watch and discuss films suggested by Clark University students. Welcome to RFU recommended for you. This is Rock Sommer. I'm Soren Sorensen. I'm Hugh Mannon. Today we're discussing John Turturro's musical romance and cigarettes. Starring James Gandolfini, Susan Sarandon, Kate Winslet, Christopher Walken, Mary Louise Parker, Steve Buscemi, Ada Tatura, Mandy Moore, Bobby Cannavale, Amy Sedaris, and Eddie Izzard. Just, you know, a few people you may have heard of once before. A sports fan might refer to this cast as a deep bench. Yeah. Set in a working class neighborhood in Queens, Romance and Cigarettes tells the story of a despondent iron worker named Nick Murder, played by James Gandolfini who becomes estranged from his family and wife Kitty, played by Susan Sarandon, when he takes a mistress, Tula, played by Kate Winslet. Much of the film dramatizes, in an intensely foul-mouthed way, the problems of long-term romance and marriages and what has traditionally been thought of as, quote, the war between the sexes. The film involves subplots about revenge, horrible neighbors, disapproval of one's children's choice in mates, religion, neuroses that that get passed down through families, and ultimately illness and death as Nick succumbs to lung cancer from chain smoking. The film is a musical with six or seven song and dance numbers, but these are done in a really peculiar way. Rather than creating new songs or re-recording old songs, the actors just sing over the top of or sing along with 1960s tracks that many of us have heard by people like Tom Jones, Dusty Springfield, Bruce Springsteen, James Brown, and so on. The dances that go along with these songs are not particularly elaborate, and like everything in the film, they take place on location, in real streets, homes, churches, etc. In the end, Nick and Kitty reconcile to a degree after Nick breaks it off with his mistress, confesses to Kitty that he was wrong, and says that he needs her to help feel alive as his health steadily declines. My first response, uh, you know, a good 10 minutes in, when James Gandolfini breaks into Man Without Love, Uh, is the question, can straight men be camp? Can working class straight men be camp? Is this camp? Uh, Where are my homos at? They're not here. Uh, Those were some first first reactions. Um, This film, I I won't spoil where, where my feelings went, but those were some initial questions set off out of the gate. Where my homos at not here might be a nice tagline for this film. Um, I was just thinking uh, they're, they're the, the most overt treatment of homosexuality is this sort of conversation that uses the three letter F slur um, multiple times between Steve Buscemi and, uh, and James Gandolfini. Um, and though Steve Buscemi is, is talking about these 
legendary homosexuals. Um, it, it kind of is um, like they're, they're trying to have this back and forth where these guys are you know, like working class and they're kind of down and dirty New Yorker working class white guys, but they, but they kind of are weirdly discovering their feminine side or realizing things about themselves that they didn't think about before. I, I, I weirdly, even with that slur in it, I thought maybe that was the sort of most charming writing of the entire <laughs> film. Although it was almost negated by that use of that word over and over and over again, which sort of sounds like to me, it's, 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 it wasn't at all self-conscious. It was just sort of like, I don't know. It just, it seemed sort of out of place maybe in the, given the reckoning with that word in the past 15, 20 years or, or longer. But it fits with the movie and these yes. characters. Like, yeah. I mean, these aren't characters who are going to be like, Oh, that's not politically correct. My friend. <laughs> I think you're absolutely right. It's, it's authentic in the same way that, any of them singing and dancing is authentic, which is to say that none of it's authentic um, and it's not camp. So, or at least I didn't find it to be particularly camp. I think if, if John Waters had directed it, um, you know, the the answer to the question, where my homos be at would be, (laughs) would be answered and, and there would be better sort of representation going on there. That conversation sort of struck me um, positively and negatively kind of all at once. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I think like my read on that scene and a bunch of things is that this is a certain place in a certain time viewed through the lens of a, a memory of one's own family. And so, you know, this has got to be on some level Torturo meditating on what it was like for him to grow up and the kinds of discussions and discourse that he heard growing up. And it's probably semi-authentic in that way it's set in a kind of indiscriminate that's not the right word unclear time period (laughs) like a vague time period which i would place as like i don't know early to mid 80s just based on the cars that you see something like that and also the fact that there's a a kind of like weird new wave-ish punk band scenario going on in the backyard that looks exactly to the cement pad exactly like where my band used to rehearse in Latrobe, <laughs> Pennsylvania. So outside. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. I, I I don't think I ever rehearsed with a band outside. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds terrible. <laughs> Nothing could be worse, but this takes us in a weird direction. I, I just think that there's, yeah. I mean that the, despite the hyperbole and the breaking into song and dance and the kind of really strange over the top actions that we see, there is kind of like a baseline of a desire for authenticity here, sort of. Right. And I think it happens in language and setting and location. You know, yeah, there's, there's definitely in wardrobe yeah. to a certain extent. Interesting. I let, let's be really clear um, for the, for the, uh, listener who hasn't seen this film when we say that they break into song and dance we i want to i want to make sure that we are 100 percent all clear on this um first of all they're singing over the track i know hugh mentioned this but i want to make sure that we (laughs) emphasize and underline this because this was a very memorable feature of of this film they're not lip syncing they're singing over it as if in a car commuting do you love me the way you kiss me because you kiss me like you love me And then the dancing, <laughs> Hugh and I are famous for having denounced the, the act of dancing or like, we will never dance. We just don't dance. <laughs> when I see a film that I'm reasonably confident that I could do all of the dance moves in, this is not a dance movie like this. So when you watch this and you're hoping for singing and dancing, you will get neither in this film, in a sense, as our fearless producer who suggested this, Mr. Andrew Hart on the ones and zeros had said, it's the idea of like non-musicians 
like playing with music or amateurs playing with music, like I am fascinated by this idea myself, but I don't, I wouldn't say it's in a good way. It's in kind of like a car crash that you can't look away from kind of way. Yeah. You know, despite the way in which music plays such a central role in everyone's lives and all our fantasies and our escape and that we all sing along in the car, in the shower, we don't really watch movie musicals for to see people do exactly that yeah. right um we typically turn to this genre as a form of escapism uh and not a reflection of our own everyday escapism and so it's really uncanny and bizarre and i i get for a lot of people off-putting uh i was kind of intrigued uh, and then, but I also want to push back on the non-singers or non-dancers because we do have, you know, it's quite the cast and among them are <laughs> Mandy Moore and Susan Sarandon, Susan Sarandon being starring one of the best musicals of all time, Rocky Horror Picture Show and Mandy Moore being a, you know, pop star a good decade into her career at this point and her singing, I Want Candy I'm guessing this is a piece of Intel info that no one else on this call has, but it's its own early meta moment because her breakout song from the mid to late nineties is candy. Oh, wow. Uh, And I saw her open for the backstreet boys before she was anybody. And that was her big hit. Uh, And it's also plays a central role on center stage. One of my favorite dancing movies. So there's like, talent woven in here and yet they also don't necessarily stand out and shine above like they do become part of the mix so it's very odd and I I can't tell if John Turturro is giving us like I can't tell to what extent he's he loves music and musicals and is like what if we saw everyday people like the people who do maybe people who love musicals do a musical and to what extent he's also like flipping off musical lovers and like calling us out on our escapism and like what we expect from this genre and who we expect and, you know, what sort of working class characters we do like. I feel like when we turn to the movies and see working class blue collar people, we want, we want our poor people to be rich, like in short, right? <laughs> we want them to be gangsters. We want them to be like social climbers or we want to be positioned alongside a rich, often in a musical or dancing film like Dirty Dancing or Dirty Dancing Havana Nights, which came out a year before this film. (laughs) We want to be like a rich white girl who falls in love with like a bad boy from the wrong side of the tracks. Can I I quote you tomorrow in my lecture on gangster film to the film noir (laughs) class? We want our poor people to be rich. I mean, there it is. But I, I want to hit you with a theory here. So this film comes out around season five of The Sopranos and significantly features Tony Soprano, James Gandolfini in a major role, and also Aida Torturo, and they're both in this film. And so it's very difficult to extricate this film from The Sopranos, which is sort of happening before it, during it after it in a big way and everybody's aware of it right so like at the point that this comes out and i was not aware of this film but at the point that this comes out i'm watching the sopranos every night every sunday night in season three of the sopranos there's a a kind of somewhat famous sequence uh in an episode called mr ruggiero's neighborhood 
where Tony Soprano is driving along in his car and he's singing to the radio. Yes. I'm a fool to do your dirty work. Go, yeah. I don't want to do your dirty work. And that is the entire conceit of the musical (laughs) that's going on in this film, right? So it's people, it's regular people who can't sing particularly well singing on top of existing musical tracks that have not been re-recorded for the film. And so it's hard for me to kind of, like, this is not a bad thing. This is not a judgment about the film or anything like that. It's hard for me to imagine that sequences like this, and there's many of them actually in The Sopranos. This is just maybe the most famous one. Mm -hmm. But it's hard for me to imagine that The Sopranos with Tony singing along to the radio wasn't in some sense the impetus to the exact mode of musical that we're getting in this film. And that's my theory. I have a different theory. My theory is that John Turturro was watching The Sopranos and thought, what if Janice was Tony's daughter and not his sister? <laughs> and I want to make that film. And and that's what we're look, looking at here is, is Aida Turturro, the sister of John Turturro, playing James Gandolfini's daughter, despite the fact that the two actors are one year apart in age. How did you yep. feel about yeah, and, that? I mean, and, and to be clear, her sisters are Maria Louise Parker and Mandy Moore. So there's at least two generations within this chorus of a sister pack. And I, I love, like, I love this. Like, if this wasn't here, to me, this film would make less sense. Like, it's so bizarre and out there. And it's the sort of casting, like, it's very theatrical. Like, it, it's, it suggests to me a theater background. And I did Google and John Turturro does have a degree from Yale in theater. And it's like when you go to Broadway and you see a cast and it's totally common <laughs> to see actors of a ro- roughly the same age play parents and children. Yeah. Um, and it makes, it just adds that extra level of weirdness, but there, but there is something familial going on there considering this is John Turturro's own real life oh, yeah. sister who plays James Gandolfini's fictional sister in the Sopranos playing now his fictional daughter. It also yields the funniest scene in the film, to my thinking. What's the funniest scene in this movie? Soren looks very skeptical. All right, I'm hungry. Let's eat. What's for dinner? We ate already. You ate? Pork chops. Without me? Your father? Mommy didn't cook for you. I had three pork chops. Your mother's down there lighting candles and a man's here starving? applesauce. I pay for those pork chops. Papa wants pork chops. Medium rare. Mama ain't. Mama ain't cooking, basting, flapping. Oh. Pork chop. Pork chop. Lamb chop. Lamb chop. Lord chop. Ramata. 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 Stuck his meat the mama t- and take the ramata. Papa cock. Fuck in the pot. Andrew's enjoying himself and Soren's tortured. If this was a student film, I think like in the critique, it would be like, you know, if that if your if your goal was to, you know, kind of disorient and annoy the audience members, you definitely hit the nail on the head. Like. <laughs> 
this is going to be the music snob in me coming out, which is fine. It's going to come out yeah. every every episode probably at some point. If there was a, a soundtrack recording, I challenge you, Rocks, maybe on your on your lengthy commute, you have a similar commute <laughs> to my own. Maybe just just pop it on and see and see how you like hearing just people just kind of like singing over these these tracks that these songs aren't even particularly good in and of themselves. Like I'm not sure yeah. where this collection of songs came from exactly. Um, you know, and I, I don't know how beloved these particular tracks are. I mean, the, the Janis Joplin song is obviously like a, this kind of monster hit, um, but I don't know that even the, the Elvis Presley song or the Tom Jones song are, are like particularly beloved songs. I don't know. How did, how did the song strike you or the Springsteen song or anything like that? They picked two James Brown songs. Yeah. And as, as someone who has seen James Brown, they didn't pick two very good James Brown songs. <laughs> Well, I saw I saw James Brown myself, and it was it was quite a moving experience. And yeah, it was. But and I love the actor Bobby Cannavale. I love him. Like I, <laughs> but this was just I. I this he was, was great. Just horrendous. I mean, have you have you seen him in other roles? Because this is like ten yeah. percent Bobby Cannavale. This is not even like. I mean, I feel like he was like he was he, phoning it in in a way compared to what he can really do. <gasps> like, like, yeah, yeah. This was a. I don't know. But it's it, it's just huge star on top of huge star on top of huge star doing things that seem either kind of sort of beneath them or kind of sort of outrageously out of kilter. And the ultimate example of this, I think, is Kate, Kate, Kate Winslet's outrageous sexy. Uh. Can it even be spoken? Tell me what you like about me. And don't be fucking polite. The nasty way you look at me. The way you, uh, you touch your hair and you, you twirl it. Right. Your soft, white basket up in the air, staring at me. It's completely over the top in ways I couldn't possibly have imagined. If you would have said, hey, Kate Winslet does a sex scene in this film, and it's crazy, like it's wild. I would have imagined one thing and what I got was 10 times wilder than I could have possibly imagined. So like, what's up with that? I had a blast this entire time. I was like, I thought I was high and it was 2 PM on like a Tuesday. Like, especially when it comes to someone like Kate Winslet doing a role like this, which is very different than Ada Turturro doing her role or Bobby Cannavale doing his role. I thought like, she's having fun. You, you know what I mean? Like, and her exceptional acting talents are being just put to a very different use than they typically are. At the same time, if you're familiar with the Kate Winslet canon, like she likes to have fun. She likes to be raunchy. She mm-hmm. has this one episode role on ex- the British show Extras where she plays herself mm-hmm. playing a nun, trying to get an Oscar, but really she's very crude and crass and sexual. Mm-hmm. Like it, it reminded, you know, that's around the same time too. Right. But that scene is iconic. So it must be camp or I must be bringing a camp relationship to these very straight <laughs> characters. Like I love Kate Winslet too. So like I, I, um, like I, I love her in almost everything she's in. Um, but this seemed like a bridge too far and somebody's, you know, superior acting talents can really be wasted on something that they're really just not right for or capable of, I think. How are they wasted? Do you see how all out she went? Watching the, those dance routines was was kind of painful. They were like in slow motion. Then they were dialed way back for a non-dancing actor. And the vocals, specifically in the ranges of any of those people, 
it was like it was more painful to hear them sing to the tracks because you could hear the singers underneath them kind of like clawing their way trying to get out of the mix because it was like they're being trampled on by a non-singer. I cannot face this world that's fallen down on me. So if you see my girl, please send her back to me. Tell her about my heart that's slowly dying. Say I can't stop my Christopher Walken can dance. Like walking, watching Christopher Walken move, I think is pretty is pr- a pretty joyous thing. Like, I, do I want to see James Gandolfini dancing? No, nah, probably not. Not much. Um, and he's a national treasure. So, and I love Kate Winslet again. Like I've I see, I've seen every one of her films. Um, this just seemed like a, a square peg in a round hole. And and like I'm not I'm definitely not gonna. It's the same thing with Meryl Streep. Like I can't like just because her name's above the title doesn't mean I'm gonna be like, oh, this movie's good. Like it's just not. It's just not there. Yeah. I, I genuinely thought she was excellent in this role. I, I do think, I mean, it raises this issue that we brought up at the beginning and I think could be brought up again now, which is, you know, is this film camp? And I think, you know, ultimately that's a problematic assessment. Like the way that you would read this as camp, first of all, I think is kind of the classic Sontag move where you say this is something that aims to do something absolutely spectacular and in trying so, so hard to do that fails miserably. And there's a sort of laugh in that. And we end up admiring it for its audacity and sort of sympathizing with it for its humanity. And that's camp. That's just one way to read it. That's not the only way to read it. I'm a cyborg. Certainly. It definitely reminds me of that same thing. You know, this is a film that numerous critics who you would probably respect, at least in some of their judgments, thought was excellent for, for weird reasons, admittedly. I saw the Roger Ebert review and I was surprised, you know, he and I are nearly never on the same page. So this isn't given as a definition of camp, but in Richard Dyer's now you see it studies on lesbian and gay film. He writes the ability to hold together intense devotion to something with simultaneous irony or even derision towards it is characteristic of much of gay culture. And I think this is why I have a hard time talking about irony so often. I don't watch things purely ironically, but I also think I am a highly ironic person. And it's because for me, it is mixed up with a love critique all enmeshed in one. And I'm wondering if that's my relationship to this film. I recognize that this film is not like a classically or traditionally like quality musical. And yet I love it. But I also think the film itself might have this kind of gay or camp relationship to musicals where they're like, what about those everyday working folks who love music and are shit at it? And like also musicals are shitty. It's that love hate tension at work getting played out in this really strange experiment, I guess. That's how I describe this film. And I guess I'm largely here for it. I could see this being a quote unquote better film, but the but the performances I I adore, you know, even as I know they're also bad. For whatever reason, the the, the cast jumps out at me as being part of the problem for me. Um, and I was wondering if you could name for me a movie with such a deep bench, quote unquote, that that works for you. Because I find I find movies with this many different clashing kind of competent and then borderline brilliant, you know, actors and, and names and pop stars and these, this and that. 
that they don't work very well. Um, and, and when you see a film with, you know, 20 names above the title, beware. Yeah. Um, and, and sometimes I think about like Robert Altman's later films like Ready to Wear or Dr. T and the Women or, you know, do you find the same trepidation when you see like a bunch of marquee names like above a title yeah. or you think this ensemble, yeah. this is going to, this is rough. I got that sense when I looked at the, the cast for this. Yeah, no, it's, and it's for, it's for Altman-esque reasons because, because you know, everybody who likes Altman knows that he's hit and miss. See, this is where I'm like, I don't know if the failure is with the cast because this isn't an issue of people stepping on each other's toes. I'm totally fascinated. I'm trying to think of, of musicals that are the sort of the opposite or the inverse of this. And I'm, I'm coming up with like Sweeney Todd and Les Mis and things like that these kind of prestige texts, right? And you say, you kind of roll your eyes and say, oh God, right? But, you know, in Les Mis, they live sing those roles. Um, like Hugh Jackman and Russell Crowe and, and and all those people are actually singing. Like, in their, those are the takes that they're using in the film. And like, mm-hmm. to me, we, that's like watching a trapeze act or like watching the Olympics or something where at least there's the, the physical level of these, these people, like th- they had nothing. They weren't singing to a track. Like they were actually wired in their costumes and they were singing those tracks live. So there's a certain respect, like when somebody gets up and Hugh Jackman is a wonderful singer and like say what you will about the performance. I mean, it's bonkers as far as I'm concerned, but like there are actors that can sing and dance and hopefully are, are, can act and they're, that are triple threats out there. And to watch something like this, that's kind of like, they're not even like they're not even naked in that they they're doing their singing even though they can't sing or or doing spectacular dancing even though they can't dance. Half of them don't dance at all, um, and so it's kind of like it's like the ones that dance don't do it well. The other ones don't dance at all. None of them sing particularly well, and I don't know. Like I I kind of I'm I like musicals even if they fail because because they're so big. So first off, I think the film is like a hap axe, like it's a one-off thing. Nobody'll ever do it again. Nobody did it before. It's this weird experiment. It shows up, take it or leave it. And I think that's really their attitude and that's probably exactly what people are going to do with it. But I also think like the music that I like a lot, most people would judge to be like low quality, like not technically proficient. Like I think I like proficiency to a point, but then when things get too, like, so the ultimate example of this for me would be like the Beatles, of whom I am not a fan, right? So like- Shocking. It will surprise no one to know <laughs> that Hugh S. Vannon is not a fan of the Beatles. And But the reason is because they're they're sort of, you know, they're not classically oriented, but they're, they're in a, they move in a classical direction, right? In terms of how they compose. Whereas like for me, it's all about messiness, you know, bluesiness, Stuff that kind of like misses the mark, you know, in an egregious way and somehow ends up being sublime. This just doesn't have a, any kind of principle governing it at all. And maybe that's why you kind of responded to it, which is like that it's kind of that it has no it's just all over the map. And yeah, well, I jotted something down right at the top uh, that I thought was worth saying. And, and I, I do feel like I have a certain degree of ambivalence about the film, but but it wasn't for the reasons that we're talking about. Like I, I said uh, you know, overall, I like this film quite a bit, but my only reservation yeah. is that this is a film that's very pointedly and deliberately offbeat, and that offbeat is at the point that this film is made is no longer shocking, since all of mainstream pop culture is resolutely offbeat, and up to today, that's true. And so, very little of what, uh, very little of this film's shocking quirkiness actually shocks me. And so once and so you ultimately you kind of get the sense that it is trying to shock us a little and is not really pulling that off. 
But I think there are exceptions to that and that, that pork chop scene and a bunch of other things and the Bobby Cannavale thing for yeah. as ragged and weird as it is. Like <laughs> it, it really soars into some pretty weird territory and actually gave me that little, yeah. you know, the, you know, the old Repo Man jolt. You know, when you see Repo Man for the first time in the 80s and it's like, oh, my God, what is going on here? Like this film actually succeeded in doing that here and there, which I think is no small thing. I, I watched Return of the Living Dead recently, Hugh, um, and that I had the same kind of reaction to that, which is like just it's just so ridiculous. And, and, it, and it still has the, the I just like this. There's these, these sort of punk adjacent um, ne'er-do-well youngsters that are sort of wow. looking to party and like it's just very strange. Um, but yeah, it's still kind of to me still kind of shocks in some way. So um Maybe the language in this shocked me a little bit. I don't know. You know, I've talked a lot about like what I found really like fun and wild about this movie. And I didn't, I went in with very, you know, trying to know as little as possible, knowing like half the stellar cast, not knowing the other half. And I was surprised and I had no idea where it was going. And I guess for me, that's like, that's, you know, can't say the same for La La Land and the like, or many musicals right there. It's a very predictable genre. And this film was not predictable. And then when it, as the romantic on the call, it went really surprising places. You know, it's, it's a love story that starts in media res. Like we, we're starting at the point where they have grown daughters and he's having an affair and he's dying of lung cancer. And can you sort of reconcile the hurt that's happened in the process before it's too late? And it's, so it's very... I know it gets to sort of a cliche moving moment, but also with a relatively uncliche premise. I listened to one interview with John Turturro where he's like, it's such a, you know, it's not an original story. You know, he's like, this is a story we all know, but also I, I didn't actually think it was a story that we get that often. A middle-aged man having an affair, realizing that maybe it's not time to sow one seeds anymore and to appreciate what one has. I don't know. Like it's, it was, it moved me in the end. And I was also at that point still surprised to be moved. I, I wouldn't have been surprised to keep having fun, but I was surprised to feel things. <laughs> yeah. And in, in the end, I mean, you know, Kitty is willing to sort of play along and help him out at the end of the day. And sort of, and the the joke is that he he begs her or asks her to scare him, just so that he knows he's still alive. And she comes into the hospital room with a giant steak knife, like she's gonna Norman Bates him. That's a gesture that shows you that she's at least somehow sympathetic and kind of is willing to, you know, honor all the years, the good years they had together, or something like that. But she's absolutely not willing to have sex. And so the film does not resolve. Like in the end, you know. So if this was a, a typical Hollywood happy ending. You know, he would have some sort of, I don't know what, like some sort of coming together at the end that made us think that everything's solid, everything's total, complete, resolved. And the film does not end on that note, which I thought was at least an interesting choice. (laughs) So we need to come to some sort of a conclusion about whether we would RFU. Would would we recommend this film? No, it's a a hard no for me. So I I would recommend this film um, without reservation, but just because I think it needs to be experienced. It's really, truly the most obscene film. I think that's a good reason to recommend it, too. It's one of the most obscene things I've ever seen. Rox would recommend it, for sure. Yeah, I was was charmed. Thanks, Andrew. (laughs) Thanks, Andrew. (laughs) Thanks, Andrew. Recommended for you is a Clark University podcast.
opinions expressed are that of the professors and not of Clark University. If you'd like to recommend a film for an upcoming episode, you can email rfu at clarku.edu or leave a voicemail at 508-798-4355. 508-798-4355. The Recommended for You podcast is produced by Andrew Hart for Clark University. Music by Jimmy Jackson. RFU logo by AJ Simmons. Stay in panties part of life, no matter how hard you wipe. I think you're dead sexy. Gross.